0: From lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota and SixFootMama.com, this is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone. Welcome to Still Growing. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. I hope everyone had a lovely 4th of July. We got back late last night, stuck in a long traffic jam after the fireworks. We always say we're going to leave as soon as the finale starts, but of course we don't. So we had a little car time and uh, threw some movies in the DVD player and just waited our turn. It was a long wait. But we did have a lovely time with our friends. And I have to say that the weather in Minnesota was perfection. It's been a great week here. And in fact, it's been one of the best 4th of July's weather-wise that we've had in recent memory. Just a quick reminder before the show gets underway that you can check out the show notes over at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A dot com. And you can find Still Growing Podcast in the top menu and then just scroll down to episodes to find this show. You can also find Still Growing at iTunes, and if you would, please give me a review there, and you can also get the show there while you're there. Or if you happen to be listening on Stitcher Radio, hit that little thumbs up button down in the corner. That would be great. All right, so a little bit about what is happening around here as usual. I just wanted to send out a little reminder to the gardeners out there to remember to take care of yourself as the weather starts to heat up. And one of the ways that gardeners can do that is by working smarter outside. I know with four kids and not being the spring chicken I used to be, I've learned pretty quickly that I need to pace myself in the garden. I can't spend eight hours out there anymore and still come in the house and have any energy left to make supper, do laundry, settle fights, uh, You know, be responsive to my husband when he comes home, ask him how his day was, that kind of stuff, if I'm completely exhausted from being outside. So now what I do is I garden in two-hour increments or less. And I also have a little secret that I don't know that a lot of gardeners are willing to share, but I have a great group of high school students that help me six hours a week. I schedule them in two-hour blocks, so they come about three times a week. And I have to say that by having two to three girls working side-by-side with me, I can get 24 hours of work in the garden done each week in just six hours by having these girls come and work side by side with me. You know, after about two hours, productivity starts to slip anyway, so we're really maximizing our time out there. My other tip is I still have my mini fridge from college, my little mini refrigerator. I won't tell you how old that thing is, but I will tell you that it still works and it keeps a stock of iced teas, sports drinks, and waters ice cold for frequent breaks when I'm outside. If I don't keep that thing stocked with things I enjoy drinking, if I just had plain old water in there, I probably wouldn't do as good of a job keeping myself hydrated, so i do kind of challenge myself to rotate the inventory and keep things out there that I know I'm going to like to drink so that I can stay hydrated when I'm working outside in the garden. There's also a great app for your phone that's called 3030 and some of my web developer friends have been using it as a task management tool. Recently I've been using it for some of my gardening tasks and it's been a really big help to me. Um, I will have a link to that app on the show notes today so if you're curious about it or you want to use it for something other than gardening you can certainly do so. Last but not least, I would really like to encourage everyone to enjoy time in your garden. I've had plenty of years where I did nothing but work in my garden all summer long. And maybe it's because I'm getting older. I guess I'd like to think it's because I'm getting better at self-care. But I'm spending time in my garden, more time than ever this year, just enjoying it. So I might be sitting two feet away from a thistle or a plant gone astray or a fountain pump that stopped working, but I am just sitting in my garden, usually with a Starbucks or a caribou or some smoothie concoction that was made by Emma. Sunny is at my feet and I usually end up with a kid in my lap at some point, but I am just sitting there and it's been awfully nice. And now I have to say that I can't see going back to my crazy nonstop working in the garden all summer long without enjoying it ways. So that's the view from up here this week. Now on to the show. Well, today I'm super excited to be joined by the authors of a fabulous book called Decoding Garden Advice, The Science Behind the 100 Most Common Recommendations. The book's authors are Jeff Gilman and Malia Maynard. Malia is a longtime journalist and master gardener. She also writes short stories, and she and her hubby live in South Minneapolis with a dog and two cats. She also has a website at www.everydaygardener.com. Jeff, you can find him at www.jeffgilman.net. He is an associate professor at the University of Minnesota. He's written five books on gardening, and he loves debunking gardening myths, and he has two little girls. He also writes for Fine Gardening Magazine. Welcome, you guys. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Well, it's been over a year since Decoding Garden Advice was published. What inspired you when you first set out to write the book?
1: Malia and I have been friends for a, uh, for a long time, and uh, basically, uh, we sat down and we talked it out. Or we were talking about uh, gardening, and she was saying that, you know, she liked a lot of the stuff that I wrote, but that I didn't always come at it from a gardener's perspective. I came at it more often from a scientist's perspective, and that, um, and I agreed with her. So we decided what we wanted to do was to write a book about gardening that was science based, but that came at it from a gardener's
2: I I think as we we would talk about the various things that we heard people say, and, you know, Jeff has a lot he could talk about, about uh, myths that he's come across over the years, particularly things that come out of Jerry Baker's mouth. And I was really, uh, as a Master Gardener, I hear people all the time say things like, well, is it too late to divide my plants? You know, it'll be like June fifteenth or something, or or." You know, if I water overhead, will all my plants burn up from the sun reflecting off the water droplets? And I just felt like people were petrified to try to garden. And I was really excited to write this book and just try to get out there some of the explanations that kind of break it down so it's not so intimidating for people.
0: Now, in hindsight, is there anything you left out that you wish you would have included in the book?
1: All kinds of stuff. Yeah. (laughs) For example... um, Malia recently gave me her uh, some of the leachate from her vermicompost, from her uh, from her worm compost, and we ran a nutrient analysis on it and found out all kinds of great information on the nutrients that you can find in vermicompost leachate. Would have been wonderful to include that in there, but unfortunately, you know, it came too late. Um, right now, I'm finishing up two studies. Actually, one looking at uh, lights and how the lights. Uh, seedlings as they grow, and another one looking at different potting media. Both of those would have been great to include in the book. Unfortunately, it came, came a couple of years too late for me to get them in there.
2: And we also talked about, Jeff and I thought, oh, we should have talked about uh We wish we had, had included that. And I, I think we also talked about, we wish we'd talked a little bit more about Compost and types of compost and how to use compost. Because people are really confused about how to use compost in different ways.
0: How did writing the book change the way you approach gardening?
1: For myself, it made me think a lot more about things from a from a gardener's viewpoint. Um, so often, I think from a scientist's viewpoint and think about statistics instead of thinking about um, what's really going on. In the, in the garden, um, and sometimes I forget about the, uh, what I'll call the spirit of gardening. You know, the happiness that you get just from working around a plant, um, and instead think about the, uh, you know, how tall is this plant? Why is it this tall instead of, you know, half this tall? Uh, so, for myself, I, I, I got a lot of uh, spiritual happiness out of it.
2: <laughs> that was well said. I, uh, I wouldn't have pictured you saying that. <laughs> That's interesting when you thought that because I think I went the opposite way and started to, not that I'm not happy gardening, but I started to look at things from a more technical standpoint. And as a journalist, I'm trained to always be skeptical about things. But working with Jeff, I became even more aware of the need to ask questions about everything. Why am I doing this? Who's asking me to do this? What are the implications of doing this? And so I look at everything
1: much more critically now. uh, If I could add to just a little bit, you know, one one particular thing that we looked at that I really enjoyed was looking at moon phases and how moon phases affect plants. And, you know, something, when it comes right down to it, I really don't think there's much science behind it. But it was so interesting reading about it, and some people believe in it so passionately that even though I don't necessarily believe in it scientifically, the, the spirit behind it is just so um, so exciting that I, I I I think we ended up putting it as debatable, not as false. I don't think we had the heart to, to put it as false because it was just so interesting.
2: Absolutely. That's really true. We both didn't, We neither of us knew a lot about that. And as we worked on the book, we read more and kind of compared notes and talked about it. And I interviewed several gardeners who learned it from their grandparents. And it was fascinating. I I definitely would not say there's nothing
0: to it. And it's interesting to think of gardening in those terms, too, because obviously gardeners are very sun-oriented. And I don't think about being uh, focused on what the moon is doing. So it's interesting to think that there are gardeners out there that are really paying attention to that.
1: Oh, we know there are gardeners out there paying a lot of attention to that. And, hey, if it gets them excited about gardening... I think it's fantastic.
0: Along those lines, uh, we know that there are many great pieces of garden advice out there. What are some of the most important pieces of advice to you?
1: Organic matter. Okay. Keep your soil rich uh, by using compost and mulch. I mean, to me, that's the key. The organic gardeners, the, the organic gardeners who are really thinking about their, what they're doing, have it right by. By increasing organic matter in their soil.
2: But I also think trying to focus on people, helping people understand how to manage pests and disease without chemicals um, is another thing that I I think that in the book we try to say you can use synthetics, you can use organics, but organics aren't necessarily safe either. If there's any way that you can manage your pests with a simple bucket of water or squishing them with your fingers, there's all kinds of things you can do before you reach for it spray.
1: I think that's really important. For most gardeners, I don't think pesticides should be on the table at all. I just think that they don't need them. And a lot of the time when they think they need them, they should just be sharing what they're growing with a few pests. I mean, it's not the end of the world if you lose a few cucumbers. Um, Sometimes you just have to share what you've got with, with other critters.
0: I was just helping my little guy memorize a little garden poem, and it was talking about how you plant seeds. And it was saying, This one's for, um, you know, the raccoon, and this one is going to rot, and then this one is going to grow for us. I agree.
2: And, you you know, when you tell people how short the life cycle of a lot of these critters are, when I work a lot of Master Gardener tables over the weekend at farmers markets and things, and people always want to know, What do I spray? What do I spray? And if I, that most critters have a pretty short life cycle and if they just let that go, it'll be gone in a couple weeks, that actually helps people cope with it and move on and not think about trying to kill.
0: Now, why do you think there's so much conflicting advice when it comes to gardening?
1: For a number of reasons, but I'll start with that One way isn't necessarily the right way, and there could be many answers to a single question. So that's that's one reason. Uh, A second reason that there's so much garden advice is that... um, some people are trying to make money and really don't care whether they give advice that's really true. Um, and then a, a final reason is that, uh, you know, people just have different ideas how about how to do things.
2: A couple other things. One, I realized as I worked on this book how often the advice I was giving out, even as a master gardener who has access to what's coming out of the university or universities more quickly than other people do. I, I, a lot of research is simply outdated and I'm repeating it. And I don't realize it's wrong because it's already outdated. I think that happens honestly. And then I think as a, as a writer, when you're asked to write on a topic and you have a deadline, you're going to look for other things to crib off of. Everybody does it. Um, Some of those things are wrong to begin with, and then you're just repeating something that's wrong. Even if it came out of a gardening magazine, I pick them up all the time, and there's things that are wrong, and I can tell they're just being repeated. I've done it, other people have done it. I think it's just part of the trade that people need to be aware of that just because you see it written in what you'd consider a reputable place doesn't necessarily mean it's right.
1: Yeah, that that was very well said.
0: You know, your book starts out with a look at common advice regarding soil. And soil is such a big topic and often an anxiety-provoking one for gardeners. And you both mentioned that it is the most important piece of advice that you could give to gardeners, whether they're new or experienced, is to spend some time making sure their soil is spot-on amended and, and using compost and organic matter. Um, there's a lot of advice out there about soils, so a lot of it is bad. Specifically, you discovered that compost tea, pine needles, and balanced fertilizers don't give the benefits that many people think they do. Can you tell us more about these scientifically false concepts? <laughs>
1: Which one do you want to start with?
0: Let's start with <laughs> compost tea. Okay. Do you have strong feelings um, I, about compost tea?
1: I, I have very strong feelings about compost tea. I've worked with it for uh, for years to one extent or another. I've had the opportunity to read most of the papers on it. Um, and what it comes down to is that compost tea just doesn't work as advertised. Compost tea is supposed to be adding uh, beneficial microbes to the soil. And the truth of the matter is that compost tea can have beneficial microbes in it, but if you drop those microbes into a place where they can't thrive, they're not going to thrive. It's like taking a 1,000 people and dropping them into the middle of the Sahara Desert. Are those 1,000 people going to create a new society? No, they're all going to die. Same thing is true with the beneficial microbes. They need a good soil where they can live. If you don't have that good soil to begin with, you're going to spray them out, and they're going to die. You need to build your soil with organic matter. If you build it with organic matter, the good microbes will be there anyway. The compost is a waste of time. Second reason that compost tea is a waste of time, compost tea can breed really bad things. Uh, e. coli, salmonella will, will both live in compost tea while you're brewing it, even if you aerate it. There's, there's this, false, um, this false statement going around that if you aerate your compost tea, these things won't grow. Well, there are papers on this these things do grow, even in aerated compost tea. So I see absolutely no reason to use this stuff.
0: Okay. Pine needles. Let's talk about that.
1: And how fast they acidify the soil? Yes. Yeah. Pine needles are a great mulch. I I certainly have nothing against them as a mulch. But the idea that they acidify the soil rapidly is false. They, They will over many, many, many years, 10, 20, 100. But over a short period of time, you know, a few years, they really just don't do very much. At least that's what the research is showing right now.
0: And how about the use of balanced fertilizers?
1: Just too much phosphorus. Uh, so many people, they see, they see the um, analysis of the fertilizer, those three numbers, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. And they assume that those are the three nutrients that are um, most present in a plant. Actually, phosphorus is uh, the fifth or sixth down the list. Um, There's no reason for phosphorus to be pushed as much as it is. We're overusing phosphorus. Uh, It's flowing into our lakes and streams. We really need to reduce our use. Um, Generally, well, first of all, I think it's best that people have a soil test before they decide on what fertilizer to use. But if they don't have a soil test, you should really look for something with a ratio of uh, like a 5 one or a 5 one rather than a 10-10-10 or something like that.
0: Now, soil testing is something you just mentioned, and so many folks just don't even want to do it because it seems so overwhelming. And yet, I know you say it's good advice. How can you help make this a less intimidating and more doable task for gardeners? I think
2: it was Jeff. I think it was you that, re- that uh, recommended the rapid test. I know I've seen other universities talk about how there are some kits out now that are good enough to uh, be on par with university testing for simple things like nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus, and pH level. And I've used the rapid test soil test kit. You just go out, take a few samples, put it in some water, and you get the color uh, very rapidly, and I... Um, have not yet compared it to a University of Minnesota soil test, which I am going to do this year so I can see how accurate it was, but I, I felt like that was a pretty decent kit. Forty tests in there, um, easy to use.
1: We tested a few soil kits not too long ago, just off-the-shelf ones, yeah. and all of them were within reason. You know, we, we did a test alongside the, the university test. university test is going to be the best one. But they were all close enough that I don't think there's a test out there that doesn't do at least okay.
0: And tell, tell the audience what it's like when you get a soil test back from the university. What do you get and what are you supposed to do with it once you get it?
1: What the soil test will tell you is basically how much of uh, certain elements you have, phosphorus and potassium um, in particular, um, You'll let know, you know the pH of your soil, which is very important because if you have, your pH is too high or too low, um, that can affect how your plants are growing. And those are, it also tell you soluble salts, which tells you if your ground is, is very salty and if it's very salty, that's going to affect your plants. Um, so really what it'll do is it'll help you, guide you as to whether you need a lot of phosphorus and potassium, um, what plants you should be planting so that they fit into the pH that you've got, and whether your soil is really salty and if your soil is really salty then you probably shouldn't be fertilizing uh, at all you probably have enough nitrogen there there'll be a few other little things but those are the major things that you that you get you can call your uh, local extension educator okay. they can certainly help you help you through and uh, if you have depending on the nursery how knowledgeable they are Nursery personnel can certainly use that to figure out uh, what kind of fertilizer you should be using. And just as importantly, what type of plants will thrive in your soil as it is.
0: Now, every summer, Starbucks and other coffee places bag up their coffee grounds, and then they give them away free for gardeners to use. And many people want to use them, but they're not sure how to apply them in their garden. Do they just sprinkle it around randomly? Do they put it in their compost bin? What advice would you give about using coffee grounds as a soil additive?
2: I would tell people, do you throw them in their compost bins? And if you have a worm bin, throw them in your worm bins. Um, you can use them as a soil additive, um, but they're better as a soil amendment. You might as well just throw them into the mix and let them break down. I do know gardeners who scratch them into the surface soil or even turn them in up to six inches. And I I don't hear anyone say they have any problems with that, though I have read that you can deplete nit- nitrogen by adding that. And as it's breaking down, it can deplete nitrogen in the soil. But... I'm not sure that I would believe that, so I was going to ask you, Jeff, what do you think?
1: There's actually been a little bit of research with it. I agree that putting it into the compost bin is your best choice. Okay. Um, People who use it on top of the soil as a mulch generally have good results. When you start putting it into the soil, um, people who put it into the soil have very mixed results. Some see a slight benefit. Some see a um, a slight detriment. So, my advice would be put the coffee grounds into the compost or use them as a, use them lightly as a mulch. I would not recommend incorporating them into the soil at this point.
0: Okay. What about for specific plants like blueberries or tomatoes or roses? A lot of people like to dig it right into the base of the plant. Would you recommend that?
1: No. And are they doing that
2: because they think it's going to be more acidic? I can't imagine that's really going to work.
1: Yeah, they think that it's going to acidify, and it's not going to acidify that much. If you want to acidify, uh, the product to use is sulfur. Uh, Sulfur is going to acidify the soil a lot more effectively than coffee grounds, and coffee grounds can have uh, negative impact. They can use up nitrogen in the soil, and they also seem to have or it's possible to have an allelopathic effect. In other words, an actual chemical negative effect on certain plants. So coffee grounds are good, but incorporating them into the soil around uh, acid-loving plants is not, is not the way to go. That use sulfur.
0: So that argument, the coffee ground argument or the myth of coffee grounds, is, is similar to the pine needle one we discussed earlier. Yes. In your book, you also discuss using vermicompost to improve your garden soil. Can you tell our listeners what vermicompost is? And also, practically speaking, is this a labor-intensive thing for gardeners to actually implement? That one's
1: all, Malia. I
2: can speak about that directly. Um, I have had my worm bin for about almost two years now. And it's funny, because I read the book, um, Worms Eat My Garbage, and I was inspired to start a worm bin after reading Amy Stewart's fabulous book, um, what is it, The Earth Move? I believe it's about earthworms. It's fabulous. And she had some really great stories about maintaining her worm bin. But she lives in a much milder climate, so she was able to have hers outside. In Minnesota, you really have to keep them indoors, because worms don't like heat, and they don't like cold. Um, and that in and of itself is a little bit difficult, but maintaining a bin takes a lot more work. Worms don't have teeth. You have to chop up their food. So just like I'm feeding the dog, I'm in my kitchen every day chopping up my vegetable peelings and things into tiny bits for my worms. Um, it's not for someone who doesn't want to do some work, I have to say. And I think the books make it seem really simple. I have a system where there are stackable trays, and that's just easier because when you want to collect some vermicompost, which is essentially worm castings, which is a nice way to say worm poo, and you collect all of that out of the lower bins, and then you can throw it in your garden. Um, And Jeff can talk a little bit about the test results we just got back on some of that, which was really interesting. Because you read that it's a great fertilizer, particularly um, in terms of nitrogen, but we didn't really know until we tested it. But let me get back to the other part. When you're harvesting it from the bins, all the books make it sound so easy, and it's this light, fluffy material that you're putting in your garden. And it's it's nothing of this sort. It's slimy, gooey, black, flop. Um, filled with worms that you can either sort out or throw in your garden and I can't bear to throw them out there because I know they'll die so I sort them all out by hand and if you want to dry out your room compost which you can do then it turns into hard chunks that you can practically knock somebody unconscious with so you don't oh. really want to do that either <laughs> um it's really it's Kind of, it's just kind of funny. I, I would I would caution people to talk to other people who have actual worm bins before you try it yourself. But during the week all you do is add food, chop up food to the top bin of your tray, cover it with wet newspaper so you don't know, get a house full of fruit flies. And they just eat the food I and mean, then you keep under there every couple of days, you know, and see if it's gone and if it is, throw in some more food. It's it's really not tough. You just keep the papers wet.
0: Okay, now do you have to clean the trays?
2: Only when you pull the bottom one out to harvest it. Then you kind of just hose out what's left in there. And, it, you know, it looks gross because it's kind of black and slimy, but it doesn't smell or anything. And, you know, and there's just the bits of stuff they really can't break down. Like I figured out that I can't crush eggshells small enough, but so there's just always a lot of eggshells. Okay. Other than that, everything you throw in there is gone.
0: I thought the myth that you disputed in your book that would shock most gardeners is that using gravel or rocks at the bottom of containers doesn't improve drainage or isn't a step you need to take to improve drainage. You say that advice is just plain wrong. That must really surprise people.
1: It does. In fact, uh, people are still amazed. Um, <laughs> I go. I go to talks and uh, I I show them what I do is I run an experiment with cups where people can see how drainage is worse and they yeah it it, it blows audiences minds. Um, but the the experiment's actually really simple and if you want to prove it to yourself, it's it's very straightforward. Take two clear plastic cups, poke holes in the bottom just as if they were uh, being used for potting. Fill one all the way with media. Fill the other halfway with gravel, and then the rest of the way with potting media. Then fill both with water. And what you'll see is the one filled all the way with media, the water's going to sit at the bottom, whereas the one that has gravel in it, the water's actually going to sit right above the gravel. You see, water does not move easily between between media of different uh, pore sizes, or media which has different pore sizes. So since gravel is going to have a different pore size than a potting media, water is not going to move easily between that potting media and the gravel, and the water will sit on top of the gravel.
0: Well, isn't that interesting? I bet people are just shocked, aren't they? They, Oh, yeah. They are. That piece of advice is everywhere. I mean, I hear it at at nurseries even.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually have, if you go to the uh, the Garden Professor's uh, Facebook page, I actually posted that not too long ago. Um so if you go to Facebook and type in the garden professors, you'll find that and you can actually see a picture of the two clear plastic cups and you can see where the water sits in those cups.
0: You you also wrote about advice regarding pest disease and weed control. And I noticed that so many of the tips were categorized categorized as debatable. Why was that? I, I
2: think that they I think that basically when it comes down to it, we didn't want to say that It's it's like Jeff was saying in the beginning, we didn't want to come out and say people are wrong to use particular things or or try to fight pests and or diseases in a particular way, but that we would urge people to try something else. And that that made it debatable.
0: So really, in your world, there's kind of a hierarchy of approaches that you would take to any given problem in this category. And so some of these myths might be a little bit lower down the list of things you might try. Is that correct?
1: I think that that would be a, a good way to put it. Yeah.
0: Okay. You know, I loved your chapter on mulch, and some of the gardeners I most admire don't even use mulch, but to me, I like the way mulch seems to tidy up the garden. Could you chat a little bit about some of the mulch advice you've researched and what you've discovered?
2: You know, we would always recommend that people use organic mulch because it's going to break down and feed your soil. Uh, You know, we try to steer people away from things that were inorganic, especially rocks and rubber um, I can't say enough bad things about products like recycled rubber where I have garden and other people's gardens and it's recycled. So people think it's great and, they, and I understand that they're recycling a product but they, it's rubber tires usually and they break down into this horrible dust that smells bad and it's hard to get out of anything and it's not doing anything for the ground in particular. So we try to kind of steer people more towards Wood mulches or, or grinding up your leaves with your just rolling over your leaves in the fall with your lawnmower and throwing them out. Um, grass clippings. I mean, I even encourage people that don't want to spend any money to weed down, to keep the weeds down using wet newspaper. Just throw newspaper down, throw a little dirt over it, and it works wonders.
0: So for the gardener that's on their way right now to get mulch, what would you be telling them to buy? What are one or two things that you like to purchase for your own garden?
2: I usually buy cedar mulch. Um, I try to stay away from cypress just because it's not as much of a renewable resource and it's, it's harvesting. Is, is It's really bad for wetland areas. A lot of different places are saying that they're you know using sustainable cypress and some may be, but I I try to steer people more towards pine mulch or cedar mulch. Um, I try to talk to people a little bit about dyed mulches. Um, if you're using the dyed mulches, that's fine, but you might want to check with the company who made them about what the dyes actually made of. If you're going to use it on an edible garden, um, cocoa bean mulch smells great, but it can mold. Um, so people can get a little bit upset about having spent so much on that only to find that it has a white mold covering over it. And there is some evidence that it might be harmful to dogs. So I try to just make people aware of those things.
0: Now you have spent, you have some strong opinions on the use of landscape fabric, especially plastic (laughs) sheeting. And these items were never originally intended to be used as a weed preventer. And yet that's why most gardeners use them, right?
1: Well, i have to I have to say first of all that Malia is much more strongly opinionated on this one than i am um i I don't particularly like the landscape fabrics, but actually I do see uh some functionality in in certain situations uh in other words <laughs> what what situations um against a bank or something i I think that they can work okay. The problem is, and I also like them because you know they can they can in some cases stop uh, stop seeds from from sprouting. But having said that, unfortunately they they do break down over time. And when a seed does sprout, it puts roots right through that fabric, and it's really difficult to get the plant out. So it it has some some obvious drawbacks. But I think I should let Malia take. Take this one because she's much more strongly opinionated on this than i am
2: and that's true and i think i am because i garden and i have had so many bad experiences with it as a master gardener i often have to garden at other sites that are you know you know public or private and where there is landscape fabric and you need to move a plant or divide plants or weed It is a a nightmare getting through that fabric down to the ground. Um, Often it's tacked down all the way along with, you know, little metal U-hooks or whatever they are. Um, And the weeds come up through it. Uh, You know, Jeff and I did some research and read a bunch of different things when we were writing the book that even though landscape fabric that's labeled as porous often doesn't let enough air or water through. It's really difficult for plants to thrive, even if they stay alive. So I kind of just make it my business to walk around taking pictures of what I call landscape fabric fails, where you can just see that the plants are struggling, or it's exposed and it looks terrible. I hate it as much as Jeff hates compost tea. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Those are some strong feelings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Now, you wrote in your book that folks need to choose plants for their hardiness zone, and yet gardeners can be enticed to buy out of their hardiness zone at the nurseries and especially at big box stores. It's so important for gardeners to really pay close attention to how plants are tagged. Can you guys elaborate on that?
1: Yes. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of nurseries uh, sell plants that aren't really hardy here. Now, by law, those plants need to be labeled as either non-hardy or at least list the zone um, that those plants should be should be planted in. Unfortunately, that law isn't always followed. It's a good idea to check any plant you're buying to make sure that it's going to grow where you're going to plant it. But having said that, I, I think it's great to experiment with different plants. I plant peanuts here in Minnesota, and uh, we actually do well with the peanuts, but. You know, I know the risk involved, and if you gotta try something different, I actually think that's great. But know the risk involved before you do it, and again, double check everything uh, before you buy it to make sure that it really does belong where you're going to try and plant it.
0: And Malia, you and I were talking earlier that a lot of times if you see something that you think is new or you've never seen before, that's a great plant to be a little extra cautious about, right?
2: Absolutely. I always tell people, if you go to the garden center and you're always excited because you see something that you just can't believe is hardy here, even though it's labeled hardy, it's probably not. You know, look it up on your phone if you've got a phone with you. Don't impulse buy. Go home and check it out. Or, like Jeff says, I also believe taking risks are it's great to take risks. You know, if you figure out what your risk price point threshold is, and if it's if you're fine doing a few perennials that are zone five, try them. Try them in the microclimate up close to your house. Um, I am. I know plenty of gardeners who are currently growing Japanese maples that look wonderful and have survived for many years up close to their houses. Um, If you don't mind losing a tree that costs you a 100 bucks, I say plant one. Go ahead and try
0: it. Tell the gardeners who are maybe thinking about hitting some of the summer discount sales at their local nursery why it's better for them to buy smaller perennials, as you mentioned in your book, instead of the ones in the gallon containers or larger.
1: Uh, Smaller plants just tend to be healthier when you're planting them. Um, They need less resources. The root system generally hasn't started circling around the container yet, so they're generally not pot-bound. They just fare a lot better when you you plant them out. Also, their growth tends to be more rapid, so they actually catch up to the larger plants very quickly.
2: I always buy 4-ounce perennials when I can, and they catch up to the gallons, very quickly like in a couple of years you can't
1: tell the difference
0: you know there's a section in your book where you talk about the debatable advice regarding using expensive grow lights
1: i've been doing uh, actually recently i've been doing a lot of work with lights um we use different growth chambers and different types of lights to see which work best and let me tell you those new led lights that you'll see out there those are absolutely the worst uh in Mm -hmm. fact they're terrible On the other hand, the fluorescent lights do a great job. Um, For our experiment, the warm fluorescence actually did a little bit better than cool fluorescence. A lot of people tell you to use warm and cool together, and I think that's absolutely fine. But when we used them separately, the warm uh, worked a little bit better. Incandescent lights also worked fine. The problem with incandescence, of course, is that you can't put incandescent lights right next to your plants because they could burn them, whereas fluorescence... You can put within a few inches, and there's no problem. We also tested one experimental LED light, and this light um, will go for about two or three hundred bucks when it comes out um, by Heliospectra. And when this light comes out, it's it's uh well, it's a really really excellent light, and it's a high price point. But that one will actually be worth it. The other LEDs we tried. Uh, we tried Miracle LED was one. We tried LED wholesalers was another one. They just didn't work well at all. But the new Heliospectra Spectra is gonna. Well, it, it's a very nice unit.
0: And does that actually outperform the warm fluorescence then?
1: Oh yes, outperforms anything else. It wasn't even. It wasn't even close. Pay for it. The fluorescence cost about 50 bucks for a whole setup. 50 bucks stand, light, everything. Whereas the Helios spectra is again going to be between two and three hundred is the price point they're looking at right now.
0: How would you get your hands on those?
1: They're, they won't be released until the current plan is summer of 2014. Uh, they may be released a little earlier than that, and they're hoping to get into, um, yeah, the, the gardening stores. They they haven't shared with me what their marketing plan is, so I don't know where uh, where you'll find
0: them. It's not necessary to break the bank when it comes to setting up a seed starting station, and you even share Malia's simple setup for starting plants in her basement. Can you tell us more about that?
2: I have a really inexpensive um, shelving unit from Menards that you just—it's just metal, really simple shelves—and then suspended from the shelves on chains, I've got a fluorescent fluorescent bulbs in the little shop light housing. Um, I usually use just cool fluorescent bulbs and I start seeds every year and have no problem with that. But last year, there was a full spectrum setup on sale for the exact same price. So I bought those um, and so I had the cool and the warm fluorescent and I didn't really notice a big difference in between and it, it's a simple setup. I do the same thing every year, it works great. Very inexpensive. Everything bought at a big box store and installed in a day.
0: Many gardeners apply Epsom salts around the root zone of their roses for better health and appearance. Epsom salts contain magnesium sulfate, and I'm curious to know your thoughts on this. Do they really make a difference for roses?
1: Rarely. the mag- Magnesium sulfur in our soils in Minnesota are rarely limiting in any way. In other words, the plant gets plenty of them. The the ground is full of those elements as a general rule. So adding extra by adding uh, Epsom salts is generally speaking a waste of time. It it doesn't hurt anything, but you just don't need it. So why do it? I think that uh, there are certainly some people who use them a lot, Um, but I think that most people are more curious than, than anything else you know they see a lot of people recommend it and in some places in the country where there's very low magnesium in the soil it's a great idea but again this is this is the thing where you should have your soil checked and you don't always get mag depending on the soil test you get the basic soil test the one we have right now i don't believe it includes magnesium but if you if you're wondering whether you should use magnesium or not epsom salt or not you should ask your soil testing lab to test for magnesium, it's a very simple test, probably cost you an extra dollar or two, and they'll tell you whether you have high or low magnesium. If you have low magnesium, Epsom salts are a good idea. If you have magnesium that's high or even medium range, adding Epsom salts really isn't going to do very much at all.
0: So I could do a whole show on pruning trees, and I was very happy to read in your book that you recognize the value of pruning trees in terms of growth and overall health. What are some of the best tips that you can give a new homeowner about pruning their trees from tools to techniques?
1: First of all, use a nice pair of pruners. Don't skimp on the pruners. Buy a nice pair of pruners. When you're pruning off a limb, um... Don't make a flush cut. A flush cut is one that is flat against the bark. That's a bad idea. You want uh, to cut at a branch collar. The branch collar, if you look at a limb, there's actually going to be a tiny little swelling where the the branch comes out. You want to cut kind of at the end of the swelling, about a quarter inch from the trunk. Doing a flush cut injures the tree pretty badly. Cutting at the end of a branch collar, just a little further out, is a much safer cut for the tree. Prune, when in doubt, prune during the winter. There's certainly plenty of plants that can be summer pruned, but the safest time to prune is over the winter, particularly um, the late winter, right before the spring hits. That's, that's just a very safe time uh, to prune. So I think that those, those tips are, are a good start. And then, of course, there's the what should I prune, and that's actually a more complex answer. But let me give you the quick ones. Prune away dead or diseased limbs. Um, and prune away... Uh, when a when two limbs make a narrow crotch angle, when they're very close together and make a very tight V, you want to prune one of those away because what happens is two limbs will grow together and form a very weak attachment and one could collapse. In fact, we just got done some windstorms here in uh, in town and these, those windstorms took out a number of, of limbs that were weakly attached because of having a, a narrow crotch angle.
0: Okay. And now when you make a cut on a tree, do you recommend making the cut at an angle then?
1: Make a cut to make the smallest um, wound area that you can. So generally, as, as a general rule, I do not recommend cutting at an angle.
2: Okay. I so recommend
1: just... cutting straight across a branch. Okay. But there are some exceptions to that rule, depending on how the branch comes out. And I'll tell you, you need to do some research. This isn't something I can describe well verbally. Uh, I'd recommend going to some different websites, Uh, particularly Ed Gilman, no relation to me, his name is G-I-L-M-A-N. Ed Gilman out of the University of Florida has really excellent uh, recommendations on tree pruning.
0: Speaking of trees, another area of advice you review is planting trees. What are some of the gems of good advice that you have for folks when it comes to planting trees?
1: Proper depth. That's that's the key that we've been... I, I've been researching that for the last 15 years since I've been in Minnesota. The biggest key to planting a tree properly is to get the... Uh, The root flare, that's where the first roots come off of the plant, even with the soil when you plant it. So you can actually see that flare. People think that planting deeply is a great idea to get those roots under the surface of the soil. It's a terrible idea. Um, Your water balance is screwed up, first of all. And second of all, roots are going to grow up and cross the stem. When do they grow up and cross the stem? They create what we call stem girdling roots. It can actually strangle the tree, killing it. So when you get a tree, whether it comes as a balden burlap or in a container or whatever, find that root collar and plant to the root collar. Don't expect that the top of the container or the top of the balden burlap tree ball, don't expect that that's where the top of the roots are. They often come from the nursery with that uh, root flare as much as 6 to 9 inches below the surface. And it creates real problems.
0: So then do you have to kind of dig when, you, when you're getting yes. that new plant material? You have to dig that out kind of then?
1: Yes. Oh. And, and usually you dig out, if you're lucky, you dig out about an inch or two inches of that top of the soil on the top before you get to the root flare. And like I said, I've certainly seen them at six to nine inches below the surface. And in that case, you've got to dig away six to nine inches before you plant that tree.
0: So, we're, so where that root starts to um, kind of expand from the, from the trunk of the tree, is that yes. to be level with the ground then?
1: That's to be level with the ground, just like you see it in a forest. When you walk into a forest, you see the roots spread. You don't see it go into the ground like a telephone pole. You see the root spread. You need to see that root spread when you plant it.
0: That is a great analogy, Jeff. That's helpful. Um, How about width? You know, when you're digging the hole, do you have to go super wide? What should you do, you know, for how wide the hole needs to be?
1: Wider is better. Um, I'd like to see at least two to three times the uh, width of the container or the B&B or whatever. If you go out to five times, that's fantastic. But at least two to three times. In terms of depth of the hole, the depth should only be the depth that you need to get from the root flare to the base of the container. Some people will dig deeper, and it's not the end of the world, um, but I like to see it about the same depth as from that root flare to the base of the container.
2: The tree advice on how to plant trees is such a good example of a case where it's not so much as a myth of just revised research. Even just a few years ago, my master gardener training was telling me to plant trees more deeply than we understand now that you should so and you can still go online and many universities still have the outdated information posted there so it's just a really it's just a good example of it wasn't wrong it's just we've just learned a lot of new things so we
0: do things differently now and how about amending the soil do you recommend adding compost no. no.
1: Don't, don't recommend it. It can create a swimming pool effect where more water is held in the hole. There are specific situations where you may want to amend. If you have really, really absolutely terrible soil, I understand and and it's not a bad thing. But for most soils which are halfway decent, there's just no need to amend and it can end up, you can end up making a situation where the hole holds more water than you want it to and you could end up drowning the roots. So you have to be very careful with that. Um, fertilizer, don't do for at least six months to a year, because that fertilizer actually isn't used by the tree when it first goes in the ground, so it's just a waste of time. Uh, trees take a while before they acclimate, before they actually take up the fertilizer, so there's just no need to do it. Again, unless your soil is absolutely terrible. Okay. Okay.
0: Now, a lot of my shows this summer feature experts in the area of getting edibles into our landscape, and I was thrilled to see you debunk the myth that gardeners can't grow vegetables unless they have full sun. What vegetables would you tell a gardener with moderate shade to try?
2: Yeah, you do not have to have full sun in order to grow edibles, which is really an important thing to know because so many people want to try to grow at least a little bit of their own food and I've talked to so many gardeners who feel like, oh, well, if I don't have six to eight hours of full direct sunlight, I guess I can't grow anything. So I, I did a bunch of research on it, and I've written a couple of articles about it now. And, I'm, ha- you know, I'm happy to say from my own experience, too, that if you have four to six hours of sun, and it doesn't even have to be all direct sun. It can be a little bit indirect or maybe a little bit dappled. You can grow things like broccoli, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, carrots, cauliflower, radishes, and leeks. Um, You'll get more prolific crops if you have more sun, but you're still going to have enough trash harvest. And as long as you feed them and tend them and water them well, it'll still be great. And you can do that in the ground or in containers. But even if you've got just two to four hours of sun... You can do all kinds of leafy vegetables. I grow arugula, shard, collard, kale, leaf lettuce, romaine, mustard greens. I have all those things in my garden in the back, which probably gets maybe four hours uh, for some of the things. Some, probably only about three, and I'm, I'm harvesting all summer long.
0: You know, and the nice thing about that is you're using less water usually, and the plants bolt a little slower.
2: That's absolutely true.
0: Both things. So with regard to fertilizer practices, uh, when it comes to your lawn, more isn't better. And this might not be a myth per se, but it is a natural thought process for a lot of folks. Um, Can you guys talk about um, the reasons why you don't want to over-fertilize your lawn?
1: Over-fertilizing your lawn causes excessive uh, top growth. It... uh... A lot of it's going to leak into the environment,
0: polluting lakes,
1: streams, ponds, whatever. Um, it wastes money. <laughs> that might be the big one right there. Um, it's, and furthermore, if you're really badly over fertilizing, it can actually cause burn spots in the lawn. So, I mean, just all the way around, it's not a good idea.
0: And when it comes to lawns, how rare are the good pieces of advice about watering? Everything from when to water to how much to water?
1: There's a lot of advice out there on watering lawns. And to get to get uh, really good lawns, people think that watering every day is a great idea. And if you're actually going to water every day, you can make your lawn look pretty good. But you're going to do a few negative things also. First of all, you're going to put so much water in that top layer that the grass is never going to grow deep roots and it's not going to be able to handle any kind of a drought. Uh, That's obviously a problem. The second thing you're going to do, you're going to put so much water in the ground that you're going to hurt trees. And I see this all the time. People who are uh, using especially fixed sprinkler systems in their lawns and they're having it on every day or every two days, See trees suffering and dying uh, in their in their lawns or in their landscapes, and the reason is that they are simply overwatering their trees and and shrubs. Um, you've got to be. We see a lot of overwatering situation in lawns, even though the lawn looks good, the landscape looks bad. For trees, uh, watering once a week is about what you want, and the thing is. For grass, you can also have a good-looking turf watering once or maybe twice a week. Having said that, I should also point out that depending on your type of soil, you may water more or less frequently. But even with a very sandy, well-drained soil and grass, it's very rare that you'd want to water more than two or three times a week. Um, And it's also not that terrible to let your grass go dormant in the summer. When grass turns brown in the summer, it doesn't mean it's dead. Natural conditioning, it goes dormant, and it will come back in the, uh, in the fall and the following spring. So it's not the end of the world if your grass goes dormant.
0: Having looked at so many pieces of gardening advice, what conclusions have you drawn about the way social media is now playing a role in guiding gardening practices?
2: I think that social media plays a really interesting role in making it so much easier to find advice from and from real gardeners who garden um, and can share what they've learned and they know. I mean, at the same time that you can get a tremendous amount of how-to, hands-on information, you definitely have to be more aware of sifting through with a critical eye. But I'm really glad we live at a time when we can share so much the way we can.
1: Yeah, uh, social media is definitely playing an expanding role. I don't know if it's a dominant role yet. Um, we're certainly using, by we I mean uh, myself and some other professors, are certainly using Facebook and uh, some of them are using Twitter to try and get messages out there. And I think that uh, in general, it's working uh, pretty well. We're starting to actually get a lot of questions being asked of us on online, again on on Facebook. We'll we'll see where it goes. Uh, like I said, I don't think it's playing a huge role, but it's playing an expanding role, and it's, it's going to be interesting to see where it ends up uh, three, four, or five years from now.
0: Tell the audience a little bit about the Garden Professors Facebook page and how that kind of came about. And how you use it now to help people in the gardening community?
1: Sure. Well, the Garden Professors includes uh, myself, Holly Scoggins from Virginia Tech, Bert Craig from Michigan State, and Linda Tucker Scott from Washington State. And that we started blogging on www.gardenprofessors.com about wow about four years ago now. And the blog just grew into the Facebook page about a year ago. Uh, We're actually posting more on Facebook than we are on the blog now. Uh, Basically, we put up either things that we see in the landscape or experiments that we're running or just interesting links to whatever. We talk about everything from GMOs to the light experiment that I talked about. I've made a few posts on that. To gravel for drainage, we've posted on that. Sometimes we'll just post an interesting plant, like an interesting trillium or an interesting orchid that we've had the chance to see recently. Um, Usually, we try and get at least one post a day. Sometimes we miss, but usually we get at least one. And uh, it's it's expanded in in the span of about uh, seven months. We have about 2,100 likes, roughly. So we've been able to grow relatively relatively rapidly. We encourage people to uh, post questions. It's a, it's a lot of fun. It's a great way for us to interact with the gardening public.
0: And I think it's interesting that you've kind of shifted from posting on your blog to posting on Facebook. Is that, is that because Facebook is a little more interactive or a little more immediate for you?
1: It's a little more immediate for us. We immediately see whether people are reading it or not. More people are on it. More people get to see it. But uh and I have to be honest here I think that a big part of the reason that we we're using it a little bit more often now is that it's just faster. When we do a blog post it, it takes us a long time to think out what we're going to say. Uh sometimes we do short posts but usually we do kind of longish ones whereas on the Facebook page uh we often put up posts that take us 5 or 6 minutes and in the spring and early summer we're all very busy so something that we can get up fast.
0: Convenience.
1: Convenience, that's the word.
0: Well, I want to thank Jeff and Malia for being with me today. It was great to chat with you personally about decoding garden advice. And you can always find Jeff at www.jeffgilman.net or at his Facebook page with the other garden professors at uh, Facebook. Is it backslash the garden professors?
1: I believe it is, but, you know, you're best doing just a search. Just do a search. <laughs> just go onto to Facebook and type in the Garden Professors, and it'll pop up.
0: Okay. And Malia's website is everydaygardener.com. And, Jeff, you had some upcoming events you wanted to share.
1: I'll be in uh, Kansas City later in, later in uh, July doing uh, some talks for the Master Gardeners there. And later this summer in August, I'll be at the International Society of Arboriculture talking a little bit about my research with the, with the other gardener, garden professors in Toronto.
0: Okay, that's great. Hopefully, some of our audience members can catch you there. Sounds good. Thank you. Jeff and Malia are giving away a copy of Decoding Gardening Advice, their book, to a lucky listener of this podcast. Just answer the question, What is your favorite garden myth in the comment section under the show notes? And one lucky winner chosen by Malia will get the book. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot.
1: Thank you very much. Really appreciate being on the show.
0: Well, I'll have all the information mentioned on the podcast today at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A dot com. Once again, you can find this episode at sixfootmama.com in the top menu under Still Growing Podcast. You can also find Still Growing on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Of course, you can find me at facebook.com backslash with 6 Mama, And I'll talk to you all next week. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a SixFootMama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Episodes and production notes can be found at SixFootMama.com in the top menu under Still Growing Podcast. Of course, you can always find me at SixFootMama.com or on Facebook.com backslash Still Growing with six foot Mama. You can also email me directly at Jennifer at SixFootMama.com Feel free to send in your questions for the Master Gardener Roundtable, which airs every other month on Still Growing. Your question will be answered either via email or during the podcast. Once again, Still Growing is an hour-long weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. (coughs) Are we ready? Yeah. He um, also is in... Jeff, what do we say here? You were in, what is this note on Minnesota Magazine? Do you guys remember?
1: Um, I, I have no idea. I've been in uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul Magazine, but I, I write for Fine Gardening, if that's what
0: you're... Okay, so hang on a second. He also writes for Minnesota, or excuse me. Ah. Thank you. Well, it's been over a year since Decoding Garden Advice was published, What inspired you when you first set out to write the book?
1: And there you have it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Absolutely nothing. (laughs) Absolutely nothing was inspiring.
1: (laughs) Uh, um, And, uh, you know, once we started talking about that and working through that, we ended up with decoding gardening advice and pretty happy with
2: it. I would agree with that. I would, I would definitely agree with that.
0: Okay, so tell us a little bit more about some of the interesting things you found out about the moon phases.
2: Uh, what was it, Jeff? It was like, you know, you need to plant root vegetables during the full moon, but then you plant...
1: It, it, but it's very much, yeah... When the moon is whatever, then you do whatever. It's it's very specific. In fact, it's surprisingly specific. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Um,
2: It's not difficult. It's just labor intensive, much more than you would think.
0: Can you walk uh, the audience through, like, maybe some of the steps in a, a typical month of taking care of your worm bin? What does that look like for you?
1: Some get actually quite angry at me. I recently had a discussion online where the guy basically called me uh, an idiot and a liar. <laughs> um, yeah, it was awesome.
0: All right. So many gardeners apply Epsom salts around the root zone of their, or I better say root, because otherwise they know we're from Minnesota, right? Sure. Okay. That's that's going to be shocking to a lot of people.
2: That's absolutely true.
0: Okay. Never mind. Well, and it's that new science uh, that you mention in your book that that really helps people uh, make better choices than when it comes to gardening. Definitely. That's awesome. Now, do you have pictures of that on your website? No,
2: I should.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) 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 What do you know about that? Um, uh, Let's reword that. I
1: think... Go ahead. <laughs> um, <laughs> Malia, can you get
2: <laughs> it? Is, it is a little warmer now. Isn't that right, Jeff? Wouldn't you
0: say?
1: I, I'd say that that summarizes it pretty well, yeah.
0: Okay, so we're back to making those informed choices then about what, exactly. how we're going to amend the soil.
1: Exactly. And that's just the way it's, Always going to be, I
0: think. That's a great point. Good night. All right. right. Good night.